I'm Leslie Manukian, president of Health Freedom Defense Fund and host of Conversations on Health Freedom, a podcast about our most sacred human right. Hi, everybody. I am so excited. Today, we're going to talk about something really, really interesting. In fact, really compelling and something that's not getting discussed very broadly at all, which is why I was so eager to have Jessica Hockett on today. She's a PhD. She has her PhD from the University of Virginia. She's an independent researcher focused on COVID events in early 2020 with a specific emphasis on the New York City death spike. We all remember that. Remember what uh, Cuomo said? 4,000 ventilators. What am I going to do with 4,000 ventilators when I need 40,000, right? Isn't that what he said? Something along those lines, yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I just look back at that and I just say, well, I actually won't say what I was thinking, but um, <laughs> let me go back. So she focuses especially on the New York death spike. She spent more than 20 years in the K through 12 education sector as a middle school teacher, an online graduate instructor, and a consultant to schools, agencies, and nonprofits. Her publications include numerous, numerous articles, reports, and other academic scholarly works and several books. Since the World Health Organization pandemic declaration in March of 2020, Jessica has used her investigative skills to push against government mandates, censorship, and false claims about COVID-19. As part of that effort, she created a Twitter account under the literary pen name Emma Woodhouse. She became known in Illinois and beyond for directly challenging illegal orders and official COVID narratives using public data, sharp questions, and common sense. Let me just say, friends, that she has posted some jaw-dropping articles, she and the others with whom she works. Um, They contain official data that they've obtained through Freedom of Information Act requests and public records requests. Um, And it's literally going to blow your mind because it contradicts everything that um, anything that common sense would tell you is true. So we're going to walk through some of her research today and that data. And specifically, we're going to analyze the data from the purported spring spike of deaths in New York City. Spoiler alert, the data doesn't add up, folks. Um, I I can't tell you what really happened. I know Jessica can't either, but we're going to dig in and see what's wrong, what doesn't make sense and then leave it to you to make up your own mind. So with that, let me just say, Jessica, welcome so much to the show. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you today. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, Of course, I know Jessica because one of our researchers and writers is a guy named Mike Bryant, who does some incredible investigative work for us. And he and Jessica um, have worked closely together on a lot of this stuff. So he's been kind of pushing me and prodding me for months and months. And I'm always playing devil's advocate because I want to make sure that Health Freedom Defense Fund never says anything or posts anything or publishes anything that's not accurate, that's not defensible according to the data. And so I'm always like, but what about this? And, you know, we hear so many people, even those who are COVID skeptics, you know, people who are more on our side about all of the um, opposition to the mandates, they still very often accept many claims, mainstream claims, as given. Do you think that's fair, Jessica? 
Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And uh, obviously, I'm biased because one of my areas of focus is the New York City spring 2020 death spike. But um, something that puzzles me maybe even more than the death spike itself and all of the anomalous data that goes along with it is people's um, reticence toward even looking back at that time or answering questions or even considering that maybe that event is not exactly as official data presented. I've had just a very, very difficult time getting fellow anti-mandate, health freedom uh, type of type of people to to want to look at it. So in some ways, to me, that's that's more astounding than the event itself. I know exactly what you mean. People don't want to question what they've been told very often because it's uncomfortable. I mean, that's what I think it really comes down to. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I think another issue is if the New York City death spike is is real or is as presented, 27,000 extra people dying in 11 weeks, the mortality equivalent of almost 10 9-11 events, then the next question becomes, why isn't there an investigation into it? Where is the documentary about this event? Where is the list of names? Where yeah. is the memorial? Why yeah. so much silence uh, around it? Uh, so that's, yeah, that's been very perplexing to me in the past couple of years as I've investigated this event and tried to draw attention to it. So let's just go back. What prompted you to start digging into the COVID circus in general? And then why did you focus in on New York City? Sure. Well, in March 2020, when all of the stuff was was coming down. I was very resistant to the announcements about there's a deadly there's a deadly virus. We need to shut everything down. Probably the biggest alarm bell for me is when my governor JB Pritzker announced that churches were going to close. Um, as a church going person, I immediately said, uh, "No, you don't have the authority to close the churches." What's what's going on? And living in Cook County at the time, that's where where Chicago is. We have a medical examiner who posts. Um, actually, they created a COVID death database right away, like mid-March or so. And so they were posting every every death, no name, but age um, and death certificate information. And so every day I'm looking at the deaths being uploaded into this database and I'm thinking to myself, okay, these are people that are on the, the precipice of life. Like these are not young people. These are not healthy people. These certainly aren't, aren't children. So I was perplexed from the very beginning. And also maybe because I was living in Chicago and just more, more aware of city life and what was going on, the, um, the use of New York City as this specter of doom and death that everybody should avoid. And we, we need to shut down. We need to close schools. We need to keep visitors out of hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because we don't want to be New York. That was the battle cry that I remember in those days. And so after that main event, so to speak, occurred, and as death data across the country started to become more finalized or more official through the CDC, I kept going back to, to New York and saying, what the heck happened there? It is so head and shoulders above everybody else in the United States, everybody else really pretty much in the world, except some provinces in northern um, northern Italy, in the Lombardy region of, of Italy. Why isn't anybody talking about what happened here? Clearly, this was not 
um, a coronavirus <laughs> that, that struck the city, it's like a bomb went off. It's what you would expect to see if there was maybe an earthquake and then a bunch of aftershocks afterwards. But this does not add up as being something that happened as the result of a, a flu-like illness at most. Yeah. Let's let's um, remind everybody that there have been um, coronaviruses, you know, these, these um, putative illnesses for decades, and they have very, very moderate um, morbidity and mortality. They are generally a cold or a flu, nothing like what happened. So um, also, do you remember there was a, an image, it'll, it'll, I'll never forget it, and it was supposedly from a hospital in Italy, and I can't remember if it was Lombardi or where it was, but it was, and it showed all these people in an ICU, like in a hospital, and then they used the very same image in New York. It was clearly fake, right? Because they're using the same image and they just think that we'll not notice it. And so like, this is all over the news. And then it was, I think it was reported in a London newspaper of what was going on in Italy to scare the British. And then um, they're using that very same image. And the image had people in bed who didn't look like they were real. Real. I don't know if you remember. It looked like no, they were I remember. I remember. mannequins yeah. or something. And I just, I remember like wanting to pull my hair out because people were panicking. I was like, oh my gosh, you're being played. We are being played. There's something else going on here. I don't know what it is, but I know that we're being manipulated. Yeah, absolutely. And my take, you know, in retrospect, I'm not saying at the time, but as I've studied those early months and not just New York City, but Italy, what they were saying about Iran. I don't know if you remember, there was a news story about how 12 of Iran's political leaders were killed by the coronavirus. Uh, the Diamond Princess cruise ship, all of those those early events. But I, I now am of the mind that one of the purposes that Northern Italy served in effect, if not intent, is it did help convince healthcare workers and, and citizens, but in Western Europe, in the UK, in New York City, that something important and deadly was going on. Because okay, something's happening in China. I'm not sure a lot of Americans at least really always take that too seriously, right? Because it's coming out coming out of China, coming out of Iran. Oh, okay, right? And it's it's halfway around the world. But Italy, I mean, we love Italians. I, I love Italians. I, I love Italy. And so I think part of the purpose of that, again, in retrospect, was to legitimize that something was going on and that something needed to be avoided. And that event in Northern Italy preceded the New York, the start of the New York City event by a couple of weeks. So yep. it's really interesting to look at the timing of those those death events. Um, and it also helped serve the narrative of there's a virus from afar. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a virus coming from China, you know, wet market, lab leak, what, whatever people were saying back then or are saying now, and it's traveling around the world and it's coming soon to a city near you. I mean, it's, yes. it's like a movie when we think it's about gonna it. It's going right? to get you. Yes, it's coming. It's coming. Uh, Be very, very yeah. afraid. So, yeah. but have you been involved in health freedom in the past? You know, were you, wh- why are you concerned about this? Like what, what made it? Oh, great. Yeah, great question. No, I mean, I wasn't. And, you know, when it comes to things like vaccinations, I think I did what a lot of parents did. I have two kids and you bring your kid to the pediatrician and we didn't really do the flu shot thing. But, you know, other than that, you're like, okay, this is this is the schedule. This is what I what we what we do. But with 2020 um, that the way that that came down, my kids got sent home from school. Hospitals got locked down. My husband's in the restaurant business. They had to lay off 7,000 employees. I mean, 
it, I, I worked in schools, right? So this idea that the United States especially could just say, hey, everybody stay home and issue effectively an, a, an illegal mass quarantine is, is really what that was. And say, you, you can't go to the grocery unless you cover your face. I mean, this at one point early on, I, I said, I, I think I even said on Twitter, like, is this a mass delusion event? Like, can somebody please explain what what's going on? Because the city we were living in at the time, just north of Chicago, it it's like it's like a veil descended over people's eyes. And we, we got yelled at by our neighbors for not wearing a mask outside. I mean, people were petrified. I've never seen anything like it. On the other hand, you know, there's nothing new under the sun and human beings have been afraid of the specter of death and disease, disease for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? But, but seeing what government was able to do with, in some ways, very little effort and the power of social media and some numbers on a screen, that, that really woke me up in a lot of ways and made me very skeptical, really, about a lot of things that the government is saying, <laughs> not just about death and disease. Yeah. It's always so interesting to understand what it was that precipitated someone's journey to awakening about what's really going on, which is that we're being manipulated, um, unfortunately, by our government. That's the truth, you know? So I always want to ask because it's really you hurt fascinating. my kids. I'm I'm now I'm awake, right? You you hurt you hurt my kids directly. <laughs> so that's that's a lot of what it's the motivation is about for me. And at this point, just trying to get at the truth of what what occurred. And may, maybe I'll never know. Maybe it'll never be fully uncovered. But mm -hmm. I, for the time being, I'm still motivated to try to find out. Yeah. Well, thank you for what you're doing because it's really important. Um. So um, just for what it's worth. I live in a small area where people know me. We, you know, most people, like a lot of people know each other. And um, I still have people who won't speak to me because I fought back. I sued one of the cities over their mask mandate. Um, and um, there are people who literally won't talk to me. So it's not a pleasant experience, but you know what? I'd rather, you know, be in that situation knowing that I did what was right and stood for what I believe was right and what was true um, rather than just keeping my head down and doing nothing because, you know, I just, I think you're either part of the problem or part of the solution and I don't want to be part of the problem. So. Yeah, absolutely. Although it, it creates what I call the, now I know problem. Now I know mm -hmm. what people will do under duress right now. I know what people won't say when given the opportunity to, to stand or, not stand right and that cuts both ways too right now people know how i'll act and maybe it's not it wasn't always so flattering or or, or always so so wise right but i i agree with you there are relationships that have not been repaired and i think part of it is that something happened we all know something happened but nobody wants to talk about it right or tell the truth about it and certainly at least the united states government as far as i can tell i don't think they've told one truth about what what occurred they're still they're still spinning the same yarn over and over again that there was a deadly novel coronavirus you know lab leak or or whatever and they were fully justified in reacting the way that they did and yeah. that's i take issue with that it's just not true. i think the biggest problem is that it if you accept it which it's provably true that the government was dishonest from the very beginning then you've got to accept that you are 
essentially on your own because the gov- why won't the government do it again? And what was the reason that they did it? And I've given um, people who follow us know I've given many presentations on this. There's one on our website under the learn tab under presentations. And I talk about installation of a digital control grid, which is, I believe, one of the reasons that that the whole COVID um, circus was perpetrated was because these governments are um, extremely indebted to a place where they'll they'll never be able to to pay themselves, you know, pay pay it off. And I think that what they need is a full on reset, like Klaus Schwab has claimed, and that that's what's coming. And this was the first step in it. But listen, let's get to your research. So can you share your screen? Because I really want people to see your charts because they are jaw dropping. Yeah, it's it's really with this uh with this area of study, it's really the visuals, right? Of uh of of the, the data that is so so striking. Uh can you see that? Or no? Not that- yet, but I think I just did it. Advanced no. sharing options. Let me see. Oh, here we go. Who can share? I'm gonna do multiple. Um there we go. Okay, you should be able to now. There we go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sure. I can. I know this is an article that you that uh, you read, and we talked a little bit about um, before we um, started started today. So I can go through some of the the uh, findings um, from an article that some colleagues and I wrote. Um, the colleagues in an organization, international organization called. Panda, Pandata. Um, it's not an organization that I've been involved with since its inception, which I think was April 2020, but um, joined joined last year. And it's basically people from all over the world, scientists, doctors, people in different areas of study who um, come to, came together initially to talk about what was going on with this pandemic declaration and COVID and, and all of that, very much a, a freedom-loving kind of a group. And so I found some great colleagues within that group that are also interested in the uh, early events of uh, 2020, including New York. And we put together this article that highlighted just eight, eight of many, by the way, but eight uh anomalies about New York City's 2020 death data that should raise flags for anyone and make us question whether or not this data might be manipulated. Um, It certainly doesn't make sense with the claims that the government is is making. Um, So I'll highlight some things and you can feel free to interject. Yeah, I mean, I have some questions for all of it. So why don't we just go through from the top, you know, maybe... um, and um, that's a great preface. Let's just go through what you guys found, what your eight um, uh, question marks are, essentially, flags. Yeah. Yeah. And then and this- I can ask you questions as we go through them. Yeah, absolutely. And this is just a great you know, foundation to the issue of, okay, what, what the heck happened in, in New York? And this is all data that's either already public or that I obtained through freedom of information law requests from the state or a city of, city, city of New York. So um, I just have to say that again. This is official government data. <laughs> and and it's also, this is not fancy statistics. Like this is the kind of graphing and the, the kind of math or the yeah. kind of statistics that really any middle school student who knows how to use Excel can do. So we're not getting into like correlations and regressions or anything like any modeling, yeah. anything super fancy. It's it's descriptive. Um, yeah. I call it, it's just time series. It's plotting. 
It's plotting. plotting. This is very, you did, You do not need a PhD in order to understand this or even order order to make these graphs. So, um, you know, the, the first thing, and this is something that I post all the time on Twitter and ev every time people are like, yeah, you're right. That's, that's crazy. But this is just straight up the number of people who die each day in New York City or who died, who are purported to have died each day from January 1st, 2019 through the end of 2020. And this spike is massive. We see a daily increase from base to height, starting with around March 18th. So two days after 15 days to slow the spread was declared. Um, we see a base to, to peak increase of over 700%. At peak, uh, 1,200 deaths in a single day, the city claims, um, and that's from a baseline of about 150 to 170 deaths a day. So, you know, people, I think, are like, well, of course, a lot of people died in New York City. There's 8.5 million people there. Well, but you have to look at from its own baseline, right? You can't you can't think about, well, okay, yeah, of course, of course, it makes sense just because of the sheer the, the numbers of the, the population, you still have to look at it in in relative terms. So for us, when we look at this, we say, okay, the magnitude here, the shape of the death spike, it goes way up. And then almost as um, puzzlingly, it comes down, it crashes down uh, by the end of May, and really before that turns returns back to a, a, a reasonable level. And then it stays down for the rest of the year. Starts to creep up a little bit again toward the end of 2020 after the vaccine goes out. I'm not saying there's a correlation there. It's just, you know, fl flu season, your normal winter respiratory death season, right? It starts to go back, back up again. But in a city where, you know, things were still being mitigated, things were still shut down, not back to normal. We had the, the George Floyd civil unrest, right? Like there were a lot of things still going on in New York in 2020. It's pretty amazing to me that we have a death event that's limited to 11 weeks. The, the bulk of it is really in six, six weeks, 10 9-11 worth, more, meaning, meaning World Trade Center disaster, but about 2,700 people died in that event. So we had about 10 times that amount of people die in this spike time frame. And when you take out the deaths that were blamed on COVID, because most of the deaths were blamed on COVID, almost 20,000 uh, blamed COVID for, as underlying cause of death, by, by the way, and you look at only the non-COVID, that's absurd as, as well. It's ridiculous to me that the non-COVID is six weeks and then we don't have any more um, excess when you're just looking at, at all cause there. Well, here's the thing. So let me just reflect back what I'm hearing. So it makes no sense that there's some kind of circulating pathogen that only becomes deadly two days after <laughs> a public health emergency is declared, right? That's one piece of it. Yeah, that, other, that's like like it was waiting for permission. Like yeah, it was exactly. Permission. The other thing is that what you would what you would see. Let's just say there was some kind of a um, infectious disease outbreak. You would see that there would be one, and then a couple, and then more cases and deaths, and it would gradually go up, and there would be right. this kind of building. So you wouldn't see this flatlining 
and then boom, a spike. And And you wouldn't see then just a, a precipice, a kind of a cliff back to normal on the other side. But the other thing is that non-COVID excess deaths, you shouldn't have seen anything else happen if the only thing that was happening was something called COVID, right? It should have just been normal there. And now some people have tried to write these off as, oh, it was because of lockdowns. It was because of this and that. But you still wouldn't see this kind of extreme Sure. Well, and when you take a look at like if you if you look at the what I call the curves under the curves and you look at we'll get to place of death in a second. Deaths at home do stay elevated for the rest of the the year. But this is all causes, all ages, all all places of of death. And as you said, you know, what would you expect to see if there was a spreading deadly pathogen transmitting from person to person? You should see in some kind of data, and I've looked at different cause categories of death, uh, 911 calls, I've looked at all kinds of things. You should see some signals, right? Like some some smoke signals that there's a fire that that's building and that's not what you see. You see something like a bomb. Mm-hmm. It, like, like if you showed a visitor from another planet or somebody who had been in a coma for five, five years, like what do you think happened here? Uh, the the answer would probably not be oh I think it's a flu like pathogen like that that's just not what it uh, appears like um, so that's just for me prima facie this looks absurd yeah. and raises the question what the heck happened there and why is nobody talking about it and and we know this because we already have seasonality to our um, all cause mortality given the winter increases that we see in deaths from you know, it, it happens. You see a gradual curve up during the winter months and then it goes back down in the summer. So it's not like we don't know what these <laughs> curves should look like uh, in a normal year, which you can then extrapolate to an even more, um, maybe a more serious year with more um, flu deaths or something like that. But this bears no resemblance to anything that is real other than um, a unique short-lived catastrophic event. Yeah, absolutely. And along those lines, if it's, this was Deborah Burks's uh, mantra for a little while, like it was hiding in the flu. Well, if it was hiding in the flu, why didn't we see especially high flu mortality coming into this event, right? We actually had higher flu and pneumonia deaths in 2017, 2018 flu season, you know, when you measure it up to this point. And then again, along those lines, why would a respiratory pathogen explode in the spring? Does does that really make sense to, any, to anybody? And I'm not an epidemiologist, but when I ask these kinds of questions, I don't really get satisfying answers from people who study this kind of thing. They just say, well, it was novel, or there was some kind of trigger. There was a seasonal trigger. Well, yeah. how, how does that work? And And the government knew when the trigger was, and so the pathogen waited. I don't understand mm-hmm. that. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, absurd on its face to me. The other thing that we see, or a, a second thing that we we see, is we see a simultaneous rise in all cause deaths among every adult age group. And this goes back to what you were pointing out. What would we expect to see, especially with a pathogen that I hope most people would agree to the extent that SARS-CoV-2 adds some kind of burden or risk to influenza-like illness, let's assume for a second that it that it does, you would at least maybe see it show up in older age groups 
first, right? But instead, what we see in New York City is that there's a rise in deaths simultaneously in every adult age group. Now, the scale, we have to check our scale on these. Obviously, well, more death occurs in the older ages, <laughs> right? If you, The older you are, the higher your risk of death. So the, the scale here, the axis is at, at 2,500 in the 55 plus group. And then it's you know up to the 500 range in the under 55 or 25 to 55 group. But it's still, we see a similar percentage rise in each age group, hmm. which again, does not make sense. And even for people who say, well, lockdown, well, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, Leslie, but I got to tell you those first three weeks, even though it was pretty weird, okay, but there was still a lot of kind of like, okay, what's going on? We're all in this together, right? Like, so the idea that young people, even people addicted to drugs, and actually we don't see a large uh, drug overdose rise in this period, interestingly enough, but even even in, in that kind of group of, of people, that those vulnerable people, it's the speed at which these rises occur and that they happen all at once, they go up, and then they go back yeah. down. It makes no sense. Let's be clear, because especially in the younger groups, they had essentially zero risk. It was less risky than a seasonal flu. And so why in the world would this be happening? And why would it synchronize? So what you're saying is that the simultaneity of it is sure. a red flag. Yeah, yeah, a absolutely. And we don't, especially with the young deaths, which I'll come back to a, a little later, but especially with the young deaths, New York City is a global outlier with the young with the young deaths and the young deaths blamed on on covid even though northern italy provinces some of them out outdid new york in terms of scale and and magnitude not not with the young people so if for no other reason you know even if people believe in lab leak or they think covid was really deadly if for no other reason an investigation or an inquiry of some kind is warranted on the basis of the young deaths. Yes, a lot of people, older people died as, as well, but these, these young deaths happening simultaneously are a huge red flag, huge. So let me just say uh, another thing that what we would normally expect to see in something like this is that you would see a spike in elderly you would start to see an increase in elderly because they're most susceptible sure. yeah. <clears throat> elderly and those with comorbidities, but you right. would see that and you would not really see an effect in younger people. You would see a delay and a much lower amount because there shouldn't be an effect in the lower people. And so it's just doesn't add up at all. And yeah, what you just said that New York city is an outlier. So this only happened in New York city. <laughs> Right. With with the young deaths, especially, I mean, I've compared yeah. I, I can't claim to have compared to every city in the world. Right. But, you know, with 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 Italy and then with um, like Chicago is a good comparison to to New York and, and Detroit. And you just don't see this kind of this kind of magnitude. Um, and actually, Chicago, even though Chicago had a case announced a case back in January and New York City didn't announce one until March 1st, Chicago's death rise doesn't start until late March, early April. It's, re it's really interesting. So even for people who who believe in spread, right? And this was a person to person spread event, you have a really hard time describing 
Um, you know, why New York, but not as much Chicago or New Orleans actually saw a pretty big spike relative to, you know, the, their population, nothing like New York, but okay, why New Orleans, but not Miami? And people say, well, because of Mardi Gras. And you're like, yeah, but there's people in Disney World every day from all over the world. So, <laughs> so this is where the spread narrative really starts to, to, to fall down when you think through these, these questions for sure. The other thing that we see, a third thing, is that we see a simultaneous rise in place of death. Now, place of death is a variable that I discovered in late 2020 uh, is, is something that you could look at. The CDC was reporting it from the beginning on, on their various dashboards, but um, I was one of the first people I knew that was like, hey, wait a minute, look at this data by place of death. You can, you can see how many people died as hospital inpatients, how many as outpatients or in the emergency room, how many at their home, how many in a nursing home, how many were dead on arrival or in a, in a hospice facility. So it's really interesting. You can break the data down like this. Although this particular data on the screen, this is daily data that I obtained directly from the New York City um, Department of, of Health and Mental, Mental Hygiene. But you again, see this pretty, pretty near simultaneous rise in most places of death. The highest rise and magnitude was in hospitals. But by far, for all the attention that nursing, nursing homes have gotten, and I understand why, uh, it doesn't take much to kill people in nursing homes, frankly, right? They're very much on the edge, ne um, neglect. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that, that you, can, you can do. But really, the, the rise in hospitals is, is highest. It is fast. Um, it's almost as if a bunch of people already in the hospital were died. I won't, maybe I won't say were killed, but but died right right away. Um, you see emergency room and outpatient actually drop before the other places of death, which is interesting. Uh, maybe when we talk about ambulance data, we can come back back to that. Mm -hmm. Funny enough, hospice facility went down. Dead on arrival, I don't think it went up much at all, even if it did, which Part of the reason is because people weren't really being transported to the hospital at the at the level that they they normally normally would be. So this is really another signal. Again, we might expect to see going back to that question you posed. What would we expect to see in the event of something that was spreading? You, you'd probably expect to see certain like maybe nursing homes rising first, right? Or, or even hospital, right? You might, you might, or depending on what it is, maybe you would start to see home deaths rise first if it was something that killed instantaneously, mm -hmm. right? Like, like in a movie. But the, the synchronicity and the fact that all of these places of death waited to rise until after 15 days to stop slow, the spread was declared is, it. my kids would say it's sus, it's super sus. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't really make sense. It's also, um, it's interesting that the hospitals outweigh the nursing homes. When I would have thought that the number of people in nursing homes who were, you know, nearer to end of life, would outweigh those in the hospitals significantly. I would have just thought that there were tens of thousands of those across the state of New York. Oh, this is only New York City. Well, only city. So it's, that's it's why. Only yeah, maybe the, that's it's why. Only the city. But, um, but still. We, still, we still don't know, too, how many of those people who well, actually we don't really know who those people who died in hospitals were. But we don't know how many nursing home 
residents died in New York City hospitals. Even with all the hullabaloo over Cuomo and he's hiding deaths and all that, we still don't know how many of the 20 plus thousand people who died in hospitals in this period, if that number is le legitimate, how many were from, from nursing homes? Hmm. I mean, that's, that's fascinating to me. So you just raised something that um, was not in this article specifically, but I have read in other um, of your postings and publications. And that is that there are roughly 11,000 deaths that occurred in New York City, but for which there's no death certificate or name or anything like that. Is that correct? Do I have that right? Well, no, not 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 quite. So okay. there's we don't have death certificates for any of these. In okay. New York State, you cannot request, you can't FOIA death certificates, and they don't publish line by line data. We that said, death certificate, births and deaths are a matter of public opinion, so it should be traceable in some way. A public record, you mean like public, public record? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, they're a matter of public opinion. Um, yeah, I mean, we elect public officials, and, and public officials are appointed to steward birth and death records. I mean, birth, your birth was not a private matter. My birth was a private matter. Our death doesn't need to be a private matter. Our, our medical records are, are one thing, right? The, the full, your full medical record. But the fact that Jessica Hockett is going to die, you know, or not is going to die, but I'm, I'm going to die on a day, right? Yeah. In a place, and there's going to be causes listed either by a medical examiner or by a, a doctor on my death certificate. There's no reason that that should be private. I'm dead. <laughs> right. So the, the government should not get to privatize these records that we allow them or ask them to steward. Do you see what so I'm these saying? 11,000 deaths? What is the what's well, the 20, it's actually 37,000 deaths to total. Okay. But the 11,000, I think what you're thinking of is that last year. Yeah, last year I had asked the medical examiner for the number of deaths that the medical examiner processed each day. I think I asked for back to 2019, maybe through the end of 2022. It's the full data set that I asked for. And medical examiners usually don't process all deaths. They take jurisdiction only over certain kinds of deaths in certain situations. So it could be, I've, I have a feeling kind of piecing things together that the ME was maybe given certain jurisdictions over, over certain deaths during this time. But in the data that they sent back to me, you can see that the ME's office processed 11,000 deaths in three days at the end of April. Now, I, I don't think that was, and most of them were hospital deaths, according to the data that they gave me. I don't think for one second that 11,000 bodies actually went through medical, the medical examiner's, you know, offices all around the city. It was probably a data processing event, but still, why did that go through the medical examiner? And even data people I know have said, like, I'm not sure about that. I, I, how, how could that have happened? Um, but do we have names for all the 34,000 no, no, or 30? No, we don't have names. We have um, between, there's an effort from um, a, a paper in, or a news organization in New York called City, or City Journal. One, do, do you know that one? City, uh -huh. City. They, they did, a couple of years ago, they did like a review of some obituaries, like looking for the COVID deaths. And then the city publishes the names of the people who are buried on Hart Island. 
But even between those efforts, we're looking at really not even 10% of the names of the people who died in, in this time. So, you know, from my point of view, this event has not been substantiated in any reasonable way. We just have numbers in spreadsheets and, and federal databases, but no real what I would call proof. Uh, where, what where proof it? would you want to see? I would, at minimum, I would want them to release the death certificates, preferably with the names on them, right? To make sure nobody died twice, <laughs> right? To make sure things weren't reclassified, right? Deaths pulled from the, the past, deaths pulled from the future into a spike, mm -hmm. right? There was a lot of modeling going on at this time. Yes, Remember very much so. the models that were coming out? So, you know, one thing my colleagues and I have talked about is maybe the models got away from them. Right. And that all this real time death reporting that states were doing, that is not really a thing in normal times. I mean, just the expectation that there would be real time death reporting. So it, it could be. Yeah. Like I said, that it got away from them and then they had to they pulled from the past and pulled from the future. That's just one possibility. I'm not saying that that absolutely happened, mm -hmm. but it could have. It but could it's strange have. that there's such a spike and that we don't actually have death certificates or anything to substantiate these deaths. So, okay, let's, let's go on. Exactly. And, you know, we, my colleagues and I, we like to compare this event with other known mass casualty events that have occurred either somewhere in the world or in the United States. And I think that this is a really good comparison just so people can see. Um, and I understand that buildings falling down and a, a spreading pathogen are not exactly analogous, but just to give a sense of scale, if you look at a monthly death view and you look back at September 2001, the World Trade Center event, when it comes to New York City residents, okay, so this isn't showing, it would only be a little bit higher on, on this scale, actually, if it showed non-New York City residents. who so people who, who commute in from New, uh, New right, Jersey. Exactly, like exactly. Yeah. So this is only people who, and then, I mean, there are people from other countries who are reported to have died in that as, as well. And I don't just mean, you know, people flying planes. I mean, people working in the buildings or sure. in the buildings yeah. that, that day. So it would only be a little, little higher than this, but, you know, it doesn't really show up in the scheme of things as, as a blip, which doesn't mean that it's not important, obviously, as a, as a mass casualty event, but just to give a sense of scale, I mean, th this is in, in, incredible what's purported to have happened in 2020. And at least in with 9-11, and I get that people have different views on what actually happened and how, but we have names, right? We have the names of the people that were in the buildings, the, the 20 or that perished in that event, 2,700 names. We do not have names of these people. We don't have anybody calling for names of those people. Um, I mean, it's not funny. I'm laughing, but because it's so preposterous. It's so yeah. preposterous to, to me. So that, and and there's no one has been, um, they're really, they're blaming uh, this on COVID, right? They're blaming this on a virus. And in, in from our point of view, no, like there's no plausible explanation for this. We're not saying that there is a single explanation. It's that nobody's even looking to explain this beyond saying, well, New York City got hit harder. Mm -hmm. uh, by the yeah. and then they defeated the virus and showed everybody else how it's done. I don't know if you remember the the uh, Bradagio of uh, Governor Cuomo, <laughs> right? Like that that New York showed everybody how it was done. It, it's just it's just yeah. oh, that that's yeah. another anomaly for us. Okay, sure. 
Um, going back to the hospital stuff, this is a, a pretty fascinating view. I like to overlay different kinds of time series data to try to get at the mechanics of what might have been going on. And in this graph, we show the number of emergency department visits every day going back to the beginning of 2019 and continuing through the end of 2020. And then the number of ambulance dispatches that transported patients. Now these are dispatches that are in response to 911 calls. So it doesn't mean that there weren't other transports going on. There very well may have been that are not represented in the 911 data, but this is from the 911 database EMS dispatch. And then the number of hospital deaths that occurred. Um, it should be noted that hospital deaths are on the, the right axis over here, and then the, the, hop, the transport and ED visits data are over here. But the city saw a decline, actually like a 60% drop in ED visits. Okay, Again, not what you would expect really in a disease emergency. You would expect it maybe at least to stay level, maybe. I would have thought that you would think it would go up. I mean, well, yes, there's an emergency. The from the way they were talking, right? Yes, yes. And then, and then we also see ambulance transports go down, but th these deaths go way, way up. Um, Jessica, the other oh. thing, so let me just say, this is, I want to just drive home. We are supposed to believe that emergency department visits were plummeting and ambulance dispatches for patient transportation were decreasing at the same time that deaths in New York city were spiking. I mean, right. that whole, I mean, when I read this, <laughs> I just thought this just beggars belief. This is just really hard to get around in particular, when you consider one of your more, um, your slides a couple ago that showed that the mass, um, the, the majority of the deaths occurred in hospitals. Well, how did that, how did that happen? Were there just tons of debt? Did everybody who was in the hospital die? Is that what happened? Well, it doesn't make any sense. That 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 is the implication is that either some either some of the data is off the books, right? That that could be there were transfers maybe from nursing homes or even from hospice facilities, and they transferred people into hospitals, and we don't see it in the the data. That that is a possibility. But, but the I thing also, is, don't you remember they were actually transferring people from hospitals to the nursing homes? So that doesn't make sense. And the other thing is, there were those people going around filming at was it Elmhurst maybe some of the big hospitals, and they said that they were actually not busy. Yeah, no, they weren't. That's for sure. <laughs> at least at least the data shows that that they they weren't. It's funny about nursing homes. I only have annual data for this, but actually discharges from hospitals to skilled nursing home facilities dropped about 15,000 people in in 2020. So the implication from from previous years. So the implication is that perhaps a lot of nursing home residents were transferred in but never came out which is very much counter the gotcha. narrative. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm working on data to try to corroborate that theory or, or it might not corroborate, but try to yeah. speak more, speak yeah. more to that. Theory. So how does this then correlate with or connect to the occupancy? How many, what, what were the hospital occupancies? Because well, then that's, that's another piece of this. Yeah. Unfortunately, the state's data set 
on occupancy is incomplete. So I'll, I'll show you that. So this is the occupancy census, and it starts the day after the CARES Act is passed on March 26th. And I have asked repeatedly for the data at least back to 20, beginning of 2020. Uh, it's not in this system. We don't have that, okay? The reason that I want that is because although in, so this is all New York City hospitals in the data set, although it looks like there's a rise and it looks like, oh, look, they added beds. Really most of these, this, this bed adding is the, um, the ship, like the Navy ship, the Central Park tent, Javits Center. There was a hospital or something, I think that was set up on Roosevelt Island. Which closed, so, those both closed very, oh, yeah, very yeah, quickly no. without any essential usage. Yeah, ex ex exactly. So I think that's where most of the beds are coming from. And then you you see this rise, but I we don't have any baseline because I, I have some suspicions that maybe data was pushed. <laughs> you like imagine a hand, like they pushed it to the other side of the CARES Act, right? There were some mm -hmm. incentives involved mm -hmm. in hospitals. So, you know, I hesitate to make too much of this you know, a, a parent rise here in normal times, the bed capacity of New York City hospitals is around 20,000. And that's about how many inpatients they claim to have lost in 11 weeks. So even from, a, again, prima facie, really, New York City hospitals lost the equivalent of every inpatient bed. And that doesn't even include emergency department deaths, which puts it over, you know, closer yeah. to 20,000. Did yeah. they really handle that many bodies? Is that really consistent with you know what people observed on the ground? I I don't I don't think so. I I don't think so. And again, where's the documentary on this showing the biggest mass casualty event that these hospitals have ever <laughs> that any hospital system in the United States have ever has has ever experienced? Yeah, right? we should be learning from that, right? Or or you know on the on the uh, positive or negative. Um, there's a couple too. I mean, I don't have to go through each one of these, but in the, in that article, we spotlight. And I had to scrape this data together actually from like Internet Archive. But for for two hospitals, um, Mamunides, um and and Elmhurst, which which you mentioned, we just show how look, you know, emergency department visits, outpatient visits, those dropped, uh, in, inpatient admissions did not go up. Um, they didn't tank, but they, well, they tanked a little bit later, but um, so what, what's happening here? Like, what well, could we you explain this is because people were so afraid to go to the emergency room and because they oh, were that's... setting up checkpoints and stuff. And so maybe that's why emergency department visits went down and even admissions, hospital admissions. But I, I would think that that could be an explanation. It could be. It's also the government's explanation, right? That people were staying away from the hospital and one thing about New York in, in particular that contradicts that idea is that 911 calls went up. They went up pretty con considerably, right, again, right after 16, 15 days to slow the spread was, was announced. So and we don't have this article out yet, but we'll, we'll show it, probably have it out in a couple of weeks. But 911 calls and dispatches go up, right? And, but transports go down, a dimension that, goes really high up is refused medical aid, which is interesting. It usually means- What does that, that mean? Does that mean that the person refused to take medical does. aid or that that 
Well, yeah, it, it, it usually would means that the patient refuses either to go to the hospital or some other kind of medical aid, but there are some indications through different orders that EMS was given in advance of and during that time that it may have functioned as a little bit more of a double entendre, if you will, that that medical medical aid was refused or dis discouraged, including going to the hospital. But people were calling. Some of the calls, you know, were or we have reason to believe they were telling people to stay home, Jessica. Right. So what you're saying is that it wasn't just that the ambulance comes and people say, I don't want to go to the hospital. You're suggesting that it wasn't just that, but it was also that people would call 911 and the person would say, stay home unless you get worse. Yes. That kind and of a thing. And there are directives from authorities over EMS and FDNY that were telling okay. them that the hospitals were overrun and that they needed to keep patients away, you know, if possible. Right. And yet we just saw on your chart that capacity was never right. um, completely consumed. Right. So it, it it's hard to make sense of. I was able to get, uh, last year, I was able to get Elmhurst's uh, historical occupancy data all the way back to 2017. Um, so it, it, it shows like they, they were not, they, I mean, they were as maybe as high as they've been in the past, but they, they were not, their occupancy was not overrun. Um, it was actually, wasn't this, wasn't Elmhurst point. supposedly like the hotspot? The, the epicenter of the, the epicenter. epicenter. <laughs> yes. That's the, that's what it was called. So, I mean, this is really sort of disturbing. And also the idea that the occupancy stayed really low for the rest of the year. See, that's, an, that's another flag for me. That's another flag for me. What, why is your occupancy in, in a city of 8 million people? Yes, I know a lot of people fled Manhattan and were at their you know house in the Hamptons or whatever. <laughs> but but th this is really disturbing. To, to me that it stayed this low. I guess some people would say it was a you know dry tinder pull forward effect where you know maybe not from a fraud perspective but the people who would have been in the hospital here died back here. But then why else people were just <laughs> Sorry, or else people were just choosing not to go to the hospital. Well, and then I guess it it raises questions about whether people a lot of people go going to the hospital that don't need to, but this is, these are admitted people. Like these yeah. are people in the ICU and non-ICU. These aren't people just going to the, you know, using the ED as a, as a doctor's office. No, but these, but we, this is a, a decline of a third essentially for the rest of the year. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, I don't know, are you suggesting, so you're suggesting that maybe data was pulled forward or something I mean, or well, that could, ha that could have happened. Okay. That, that could have happened. I mean, this isn't in the article, but I'll show you. I did. I was able to get daily deaths for Elmhurst for 2020, all causes. They wouldn't give me before then. Isn't that funny? Um, they made up a really lame excuse. Had their big lawyer respond to me, but they they wouldn't they wouldn't give it to me. Um, and I don't have ED visits right now for that zip code beforehand before March 1st. I'm working on getting that, but this is from the public data set. So, I mean, we see ED visits peaked before 15 days to slow the spread was declared and then went down. And then we see that they lost, if you add this up, they, they lost 
uh, one and a half times their peak occupancy in this period. So the, you know, I, I never worked in a hospital, but I worked in restaurants as from a restaurant family. And when I think about the turnover that had to have happened here, uh, that's that's really scary to me. Now there was military inside Elmhurst Hospital and some of the other hospitals. I don't know if the military was in there to help with body removal. I I don't know. I don't know. So, but this this chart, it let, let's say it happened. Let, let's say this official data is reflecting a real-time event. Then where is the investigation? Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, we're, completely. We're, I mean, we're talking about a hospital that experiences, you know, one to five deaths a day. And then at peak, they went up over 30 and they were, you know, double digits for over a month. That's a lot of bodies. Yeah, very much. Uh, I'm being mindful of the time. I think you need yes. to wrap yes. up, don't you? Is there Are there other things you want to touch on real quickly? Yeah, just real quick. I mean, this is staggering. Yeah, this is this is just new. You know, people sometimes ask, well, what about New York City compared to other cities? This is a, a comparison to other cities. By the way, L.A., I don't know what was going on in L.A. in late 2020, early 2021. But even then, they did not outpace New York. So this gives a good sense of, of relativity. Well, and that's just, L.A. spike was during the roll, you know, right after the rollout of the shot. Yes, it was. Right. And, you know, the, the further you go on, the more factors you have rolled in there mm -hmm. right? with ongoing, you know, mental health issues, mitigations, uncertainty, just a lot, a lot of things going on and the flu shot right here, by, by yeah. the way. So um, and then but but really the, the most con one of the more this one blew my mind It's still is still the number of younger adults who died in this period, uh, including this is just hospitals. 25 to 54 year olds. And most of the increase is blamed on COVID-19. Um, New York City has 3% of the country's population for ages 25 to 54, but yet they had 25% of all COVID deaths in this spring period in that age group. That does But even more than that, can you go back to the um, graph? What I find staggering about this is that, first of all, as we've discussed, 25 to 54-year-olds had a very, very low death rate from COVID if you accept the official data. So that doesn't make any sense. Then you see this spike, and we're told that the entire spike almost is attributable to COVID. But COVID didn't spike for this age group. So <laughs> what is really happening here? I, I don't know. It could be that I, other kinds of deaths were blamed on COVID, but even then, this is hospital inpatients. So that's why I go back to, did a bunch of people who are already in the hospital get killed? Right? That That's only- These were hospital inpatients. Yeah. yeah. So these were people that were admitted at some point. We don't know when they were admitted. They could have been admitted before the event began. Yeah. Well, we do know, um, you know, there was just this um, report that came out um, who published it. I think it was someone from Australia, but it's using British data. And it's all about how we now know it's documented that sedatives like midazolam were prescribed. And these are end of life drugs um, that basically relax you and reduce anxiety and essentially allow you to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. It's euthanasia. It's a euthanasia drug. And we know they're now admitting in Britain from official data that tens of thousands of people died, not from COVID, but from um, administration of midazolam. And 
we just have that data in the UK. We don't have it elsewhere. So, you we know, have some this- for New- we have some for New York and I'll tell you, I, I don't mind saying this out loud with all the, the um, out, outcry for ventilators, right? The data is not there to blame this whole toll on ventilator use, but um, you, you need some heavy drugs to go on v- ventilators. So yes. I, in, and the fastest way for somebody to die in a medical setting is by an injection. Yeah. You uh, give him a little midazolam, you give him some morphine, morphine suppresses oh. breathing. I know this because my father-in-law died September 2nd of 2022 in the hospital in Twin Falls, Idaho. Yeah. And um, it's been very hard for us to get information about what happened to him from the kidney center where he went. And it was very strange. He was doing great. And then they transferred him to Twin Falls. And then he went over a cliff all of a sudden. And they refused all the things that we asked. And it was really, it was, um, it's another huge can of worms, but let's just say, you know, if you look at um, Grace, um, what's her dad, Grace? Shara. Yeah, Shara. Yeah. Um, His daughter was administered morphine and I think midazolam, wasn't she? Versed maybe was the brand name, but I could be wrong on that. That's a Pfizer drug, by the way. Yes. Yes. Pfizer makes Versed, which is- Isn't that what she was given though? Yeah, if I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah. Just 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 to cover ourselves, I'm not 100% that those were the drugs, but I'm pretty sure she was given a cocktail and that those were the drugs and that they are not to be administered together because they have such dangerous cotoxicity. So this is um, you know, well, and just as important, I mean, not not only for her, but you know, we're, we're looking at these New York City hospitals, there were no third-party witnesses that were allowed. People's people's loved ones weren't allowed in. And so yeah. do we think that that increases the likelihood of even just medical error? Yeah. And death? Yes, it does. You know what? And I actually have to correct myself. The data out of the UK was specific to, I think there was a component of it's midazolam, but the other component of it is um, do not resuscitate, DNRs, do yeah. not resuscitate. Yeah. So they basically have said a a report has stated that tens of thousands of people died because of mass sedation combined with these DNRs and grace was given. So um, Scott's daughter, she was a down syndrome um, young woman around age of 19, I believe she was, they applied a DNR to her without the family's permission, which is illegal. And that's why they're suing. But um, anyway, my point is that, People need to understand that we're not just speculating or just pulling stuff out of thin air, that these things did happen. And there are, there are firsthand accounts of them happening. And um, it's incredibly painful. It's incredibly difficult to digest, but there are some serious issues and, and we should all be asking a lot of questions and not just um, accepting the story that's being pushed out about what happened. Maybe this was somehow engineered in order to terrify everybody into compliance and submissiveness. Maybe that's what the purpose of this was, but you know, I'm not going to speculate more than to say that that's a question in my mind. So Jessica, is there anything else you want to wrap up with or, or, or share before we, um, before we close? Um, 
like I said, we're going to be uh, coming out with another article through Panda on the 911 and ambulance dispatch data and the people who died at home. So people can look for that on, on uh, panda.org. I'm at woodhouse76.com and all of my New York related inquiries are, are under under there. Um, Say it again. Woodhouse76.com. Dot com. That's where you guys can find Jessica's work. My work. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm always looking to talk with people. I've I've interviewed people off the record, interviewed people to be quoted under pseudonyms and what what have you. Um, so I'm any any information that people ever want to to share with me, uh, I'll I'll take it in my effort to try to piece together what happened and try to compel somehow compel authorities to uh, tell the truth about this event. Well, Jessica, thank you so very, very much for coming and sharing your incredibly thought-provoking research with us. Please do stay in touch and keep me posted about the next when you do publish that article, okay? Okay, Leslie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Conversations on Health Freedom. Please follow us at healthfreedomdefense.org, where you can become a member, subscribe to our newsletter, donate to our cause, and follow us on social media.